Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Welcome back to Lolita Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Loftus. This is part two of our episode about the 1997 adaptation of Lolita by Adrian Lyne. So if you haven't listened to part one, I would recommend going back. Uh, we covered in our last episode some of the production of the 97 movie, a few movies of the 70s and 80s that attempted to address child sex abuse with mixed results, as well as real life cases of CSA and the stranger danger culture of the 1980s. And in part two, we are going to start out in the early 90s, when the friction between the messaging of we must protect the children and a pop culture landscape that is very willing to sexualize the underage, then blame them for it, continues to escalate. Friction between protecting the children and over-sexualizing the children reaches its fever pitch by the early 1990s, shortly before Adrian Lyons' Lolita went into production. Keep in mind, erotic thrillers were what Lyne was famous for before he made Lolita, particularly Fatal Attraction from 1987. There is a distinct trend in the early 90s of vindictive, sexually evil teenage girls. There's countless movies with this theme, but the best remembered one is probably a movie from 1993 called The Crush, starring Alicia Silverstone in her first movie when she is only 16. She plays the part of Adrian, a conniving young woman who seduces an older man who's played by Carrie Elwes. Elwes? I never know how to say his name. He was in The Princess Bride, and she ruins his life. The Crush was written and directed by a man named Alan Shapiro, who claims that this movie is based on his life. So keep that in mind when hearing the events that take place in this movie. While Alicia Silverstone, the actor, is 16 when this is filmed, the character, Darian, whose name is later changed to Adrian, 
is only 14. The genre of The Crush is firmly erotic thriller, and while the movie was probably the most successful to feature an oversexed teenager as an antagonist, there are at least 50,000 movies with this exact theme released in the early 90s. This media is overwhelmingly angled to make it seem like white heterosexual men with good careers are being actively seduced into ruin by teenage girls. And it's no coincidence that all of the high-profile child sex abuse cases in Hollywood of this era involve men of this exact description. Everyone, everyone. Okay, let's talk about the crush. How much they're paying you to watch me? Just running the guest house. From the moment she met Nick. You don't know how hard it is for me to make friends. It's like everybody thinks I'm some kind of freak or something. I'll be your friend. She was crazy about him. Carrie Alves plays Nick Elliott, a reporter for Peak Magazine who rents a guest house from a wealthy couple who have a 14-year-old daughter named Adrian. Adrian takes an interest in Nick, and many of the early scenes and plot points reflect adaptations of Lolita, particularly the portion where Humbert Humbert is living as a lodger in Charlotte Hayes' home and is obsessing over Dolores. In The Crush, the sexualization of Adrian is made very clear. Are you sure you're only 14? Almost 15. Isn't it way past your bedtime? Yes. <clears throat> Adrian pursues Nick relentlessly, and Nick passively receives the attention, even when his co-worker slash adult love interest warns him that Adrian is bad news. She's got a crush on you. Don't be silly. What are you saying? I did something to provoke this? Well, did you? No, of course not. Adrian and Nick kiss early on in the movie, a kiss that is initiated by Adrian. Nick, who is 28 to her 14, very much kisses her back, but then says it's wrong and they can't be together. I mean, let's face it, you're 14, I'm 28. That's a big difference. Whatever you say. No, no. Seriously, Adrian. Like that night up at the lighthouse when we kissed? Now that was a mistake, Adrian. When this happens, Adrian, who by the way is also a super genius of course, makes it her mission in life to punish Nick for not being her boyfriend. These supervillain qualities are juxtaposed with the little girl aesthetics that most 14-year-olds grow out of. In a scene where Nick sneaks into her room, then hides in a closet and watches her undress, seriously, we see that Adrian's room is full of horse trophies and pink and lace. This is set up as classic nymphette imagery depicting girlhood, while also featuring long, lingering shots of Alicia Silverstone in a bikini, gazing up into Nick's window. Adrian stalks Nick interferes with articles that he's writing for his job, she defaces his car, she deletes his work, she spies on him having sex with the adult love interest, and then, I shit you not, locks Nick's love interest in a photography darkroom and fills the darkroom with bees. Alan Shapiro presents this in the movie as if these are all things that have actually happened to him. Here's how Variety characterizes it in their review of The Crush at the time. Writer-director Alan Shapiro says in the production notes that the idea was inspired by an incident in his own life, where a brilliant young woman developed a crush on him and refused to take no for an answer. 
So before Adrian can get in trouble for this whole B crime, Adrian falsely accuses Nick of sexual assault by stealing a used condom from his trash, and Nick is arrested by the police. After getting bailed out, Adrian's friend tells Nick that she knows that Nick is innocent and that Adrian has had a history of this obsessive behavior, going so far as to say that a camp counselor that Adrian had been fixated on had once accidentally been poisoned to death. Adrian then appears out of nowhere with a weapon, and she and Nick have a fight on an antique carousel. I don't even know. And the fight concludes with Nick punching Adrian across the room. Nick's girlfriend, who almost died from bees, lives. Adrian is locked up. The end. So yeah, this is obviously not a true story, but here's the kicker. When you watch The Crush back now, which I would not recommend that you do, Alicia Silverstone's character is called Adrian Forrester, but it's pretty obvious that when it was filmed, everyone is calling her something different. No one's mouth is forming the name Adrian. Here's why. Silverstone's character was originally named Darian Forrester, which is a woman's real name. The real name of the person Alan Shapiro claims Alicia Silverstone's character is based on. I repeat, Alan Shapiro used a real person's name in a movie that suggests that a 14-year-old, someone unable to consent, was a vindictive seductress, an evil super genius, and an executioner via bees. So when the real Darian Forrester saw the crush had been released with her real name, she sued them and she won. So while Silverstone was referred to as Darian in the original theatrical release of the movie, the crush had to be redubbed, and she's referred to as Adrian Forrester by the time the movie is re-aired on TV and even now. But if you go back and listen to the trailer... Nick Elliott was looking for a nice, quiet place to write. Then he met... Darian. Just unfucking believable This teen seductress trope is very prevalent around this time and is equally insidious. Poorly written as she is, Adrian slash Darian is a solid example of how these underage characters are written very deliberately to remove any blame from the older man in the equation. Adrian is not just competent, she is hyper-competent. She is a genius. Writing like this tries to sell us the idea that it's easier to believe that a 16-year-old who does well in school would be a vindictive murderer than the idea that a 28-year-old man might hit on an underage girl when he thought no one was paying attention. Alicia Silverstone, in spite of being pretty press-shy as a teenager, is sexualized heavily in interviews from this era, especially after she starred in the Aerosmith music video for crying at age 17 in another very sexy music video girl role. Here's Jon Stewart in 1994 being an absolute creep to a 17-year-old Alicia Silverstone. I'm crushed. <laughs> Absolutely crushed. How old are you? 17. 17. Cool. Man, I feel like Joey Buttafuoco all of a sudden. Thank you. My first Buttafuoco reference of the evening. And hold the phone there. Who's Joey Buttafuoco? It's actually uh, Buttafuoco. I have Italian family who will hand my ass back to me if I don't say it right. But I honestly didn't know who Joey Buttafuoco was before researching for this episode. 
His was the name heard around the world in the mid-90s and is unfortunately very relevant to what we're talking about because Joey Buttafuoco is a statutory rapist. Around the time of The Crush, the name Lolita was synonymized with a teenage girl who was framed as vengeful and vindictive. I'm talking about the saga of Amy Fisher, who at 17 shot and wounded Mary Jo Buttafuoco, who was the wife of Amy Fisher's boyfriend, a 35-year-old auto body mechanic named Joey Buttafuoco, who had knowingly had sex with Fisher while she was underage. Fisher was dubbed the Long Island Lolita by the tabloid media, and throughout 1992, when her crime was committed, Fisher's image was everywhere. Mary Jo thankfully recovered, but Fisher became one of the earliest examples of a young woman absolutely devoured by the 24-hour news media, and she was sent to jail in late 1992. Here's an idea of how the press was treating her at this time. You are a tragedy and disgrace to yourself, to your family, to your friends, and to society. Look into her eyes and decide for yourself. Is she a little girl lost or a hateful creature who was willing to kill to get what she wanted? What all of this leaves out are the actions of Joey Buttafuoco. He was a 35-year-old who had been having sex with a minor on multiple occasions, completely knowingly, and in addition, had recruited and made money off of Amy Fisher by prostituting her to a Long Island escort service. And Amy Fisher was not the only young girl he was doing this with. So here's a man who has been bringing a teenage girl to a motel to have sex with her, encouraging her to become a sex worker, profiting off of that, telling her repeatedly, it sure would be great if my wife were dead. And then when Amy Fisher does commit the crime of her own volition, Joey Buttafuoco rats her out immediately and says that he didn't even know Amy Fisher. She was sexually obsessed with him. This was, of course, a complete lie. By 1993, the public would learn that he didn't just know her, but was a statutory rapist and a sex trafficker, and that Amy was a victim of both of these crimes. But by that point, it almost didn't matter. Amy Fisher had already been chewed up and spit out and was sitting in jail. By the 1990s, demonizing young women was a common practice in the 24-hour news cycle. The year after Amy Fisher is put in jail for assaulting Mary Jo Buttafuoco, the Tanya Harding story kicks up. And later in the decade, there's more famous public shaming and blaming of figures like Monica Lewinsky and Anita Hill. Each and every one of these women were characterized as obsessive, as jealous. They were judged on their looks, and it was assumed that they were courting the massive public scrutiny that none of them seemed to benefit from. And in Amy Fisher's case, she was underage. Keep in mind that all these stories were being exploited and rehashed over and over, while actual issues in the U.S., the ever-increasing mass incarceration of Black Americans in particular, were being completely ignored in favor of focusing on one white 18-year-old girl going to prison. Interestingly enough, the piece of media besides Lolita most often brought up in conversations about Amy Fisher in the early 90s was Glenn Close's character in Adrian Lyon's Fatal Attraction. Hell, the Nassau homicide detective described her in those terms right after she was arrested. If she couldn't have him, no one else could. She was obsessed with him. It was a near fatal attraction. And so less than two years before Adrian Lyon's Lolita would go into production, we as a culture were buying what Joey fucking Buttafuoco was selling. The first adaptation of the story of the Long Island Lolita was released 
three weeks after Amy Fisher was sentenced five to 15 years in prison. It was called Amy Fisher, My Story. Amy Fisher had sold her life rights for this movie, partially in order to make bail. 1993 brought even more. A TV movie called The Amy Fisher Story starred Drew Barrymore as Fisher and Casualties of Love, The Long Island Lolita Story starred Alyssa Milano. All of these were panned critically and millions of people watched them. And just as most high-profile 90s women of the tabloids, Fisher's character in these movies was oversexed, demonized, and made to seem like the main person at fault. So at the height of this case, Amy Fisher said in one of her only interviews at the time, one done with Inside Edition, that she was also raped by a friend of the family at age 13 and had intentionally overdosed twice after another older boyfriend sold footage of her to a tabloid press called Hard Copy ahead of her sentencing. Here's another clip from one of these movies. When I was 12 years old, my parents had a tile man do an Italian marble in the house, and he was the first guy I ever did it with. Get out of here. Serious? Yeah. You had sex when you were 12 years old. <laughs> yeah. This clip is from the Alyssa Milano movie, where Amy Fisher is written particularly cruelly, but it's the Drew Barrymore casting that I find most interesting here. And we could get deep into why Drew Barrymore would be considered ideal for the role of Amy, as she had become regular tabloid fodder as a teenager herself in a way that very much framed her as a villain and a cautionary tale, all while profiting off of her image. Barrymore starred in a movie called Poison Ivy in 1992 that shares a lot of similarities with The Crush. She's featured multiple times as a killer teen in this era of her career, and is only 18 when playing Amy Fisher. When it comes to child stars who were overexposed while still underage, Drew Barrymore always comes into the conversation. And look, I'm not going to relitigate the Fisher Buttafuoco case here. It's a long story, and it's recapped in an excellent episode of the podcast You're Wrong About with Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall that I'll link in the description. Amy Fisher's crime resulted in an innocent woman, Mary Jo Buttafuoco, suffering permanent physical damage. Although I'm happy to say she's fine now, finally divorced Joey Buttafuoco years later, and most recently released a memoir about the whole experience called getting it through my thick skull. What there's no question about in my mind is that Amy Fisher's crime was connected to Lolita to characterize her as a sexually promiscuous and vengeful teenage girl, a girl who is to blame. One element of the story I found really interesting was the conversation around Amy Fisher's eventual release from prison in 1999. She served seven out of 15 potential years in prison, benefiting from some clear privilege there. But what I didn't know was that Mary Jo Buttafuoco, the woman that Amy Fisher shot, was critical in allowing her to get released. Buttafuoco spoke at the hearing to have Amy Fisher released. She'd been in contact with Fisher's mother from 1997 up until her release in 99 and said the following. She needed to be punished. She tried to kill me. But Amy Fisher is not a Lolita. This is a sick girl. This is not a seductress. The 1980s and 1990s were full of splashy, overexposed stories like this that closely connected to the rise of the 24-hour news cycle. 
Amy Fisher was 18 by the time she was convicted and was very much treated like an adult seductress. During these same years, there was also an increase in awareness of violence towards children, as well as the existence of child pornography. So that's America in the 90s. There is nothing more lethal than a teenage girl's sexuality, but also we must protect the children. And here we are, listener, right back at Adrian Lyons' Lolita. Lolita, starring Jeremy Irons and Dominique Swain, was shot in 1995. It features a haunting, dissonant soundtrack from Ennio Morricone, and the vibe on set, per Elizabeth Kay's Esquire article, is unique. The shoot began in North Carolina, and Dominique Swain had been there rehearsing with Adrian Lyne and a guardian for a month before Jeremy Irons showed up. Irons was annoyed to find that Dominique had already bonded with Lyne and said so. Lyne replied to him with this. That's totally crazy. I never thought about it. It's just that I have to nurture her because she's never done it before. By all accounts, Lyne treated his actors and crew kindly in spite of a grueling shoot. Unlike Kubrick, who downplayed the American road trip of his 1962 adaptation and filmed the entire movie in England, Lyne was very focused on the details and literally brought his cast and crew across the country on a road trip as they shot, going from North Carolina to New Orleans to Texas to New Mexico. Something I found particularly interesting was Kay's descriptions of the crew grappling with the story that they were bringing to life. She writes this. At times, people working on the movie felt compelled to defend its subject, often for the oddest of reasons. Among them, that since girls must cease to be virgins, they may as well be deflowered by their fathers, who can, at least, be said to love them. One principal figure in the action, denying Humbert's calamitous effect on Lolita, invoked a female friend who had been sexually abused as a child, yet had emerged miraculously unscathed. Another anecdote comes from the scene where we first meet Dominique Swain's Lolita, a scene in which her sheer dress is soaked as she lays beneath a sprinkler. Elizabeth Kay writes this. Their camera focused on Lyne's red-headed Lolita, a 15-year-old in a red bathing suit, sprawling beneath a lawn sprayer that drenched her with spouting water as she frolicked with a panting male dog in a manner markedly erotic, while puzzled passers-by looked on. What's this movie about? One asked. Some middle-aged guy, a grip answered, who falls in love with a young girl. Based on a literary classic said the unit PR woman. Don't forget that. Jeremy Irons gets in on the fun, saying, making a movie about something isn't condoning it. True enough, Jer, but this depends very much on how the creatives at the top of that movie view the subject matter. Adrian Lyons' comments make this difficult. One quote that stands out. If I were doing a movie about a 13-year-old getting chopped up by cannibals, there'd be no problem. Uh, There is no other intuitive place to put this in this episode, so I just wanted to mention here that while I think that Jeremy Irons turns in a pretty solid performance in this movie, uh, he has a pretty notable track record of making misogynistic and homophobic comments at literally every opportunity that simply need to be Googled to be believed. These are comments that he only began to distance himself from beginning in February 2020, where he gave a very weird preface to a talk in Berlin by saying that he actually didn't mean every fucked up thing he's ever said, so please stop asking. These problematic comments are mostly taking place in the 2010s, not back in the late 90s when Lolita was made. But he does slip up a little bit in the Lolita press junket here, saying this. 
We were living in a sort of strange fantasy world whereby Dominique was 14 and apparently um, had to be protected. Now, a 14-year-old Californian knows about everything. I mean, you know, come on. Um, so, on one hand, we were trying to be legal and, and, and really treating her as this porcelain child who didn't know where she came from uh, or how all that occurred. On the other hand, we were dealing with an actress who'd read the book, understood the book, quite liked the book, um, who lived the life of any Californian 14-year-old and knew all about it. Yeah, what a bunch of babies protecting a 14-year-old on the set of a movie where your character, Jeremy Irons, is repeatedly assaulting her. Those prudes. Uh, Irons also, to repeat, signed that petition we discussed in part one, saying that Roman Polanski, a convicted child sex abuser, should be released. I mean, the man plays the most famous child sex abuser of all time and reads the audiobook that we all listen to, and he still defends Roman Polanski. So uh, we here at the pod, me here at the pod, are not fans of Jeremy Irons. We just have to talk about him a lot in this episode. Dominique Swain was described as being generally outgoing on the set and worked closely with Line, who would describe to her when to pause and when to react within a scene. She was also said to have held up production for a full day with her anxiety of having to play a 17-year-old pregnant Lolita. Kay speculates that because the movie was filmed in sequence, this anxiety came from it being her last scene in the movie. There's also a few accounts of Jeremy Irons being overly harsh with Dominique Swain. At one point during the shoot, she made a suggestion on how he might approach a scene, and he replied, don't tell me what to do, and she burst into tears. Dominique's mother was on set when sex scenes with Swain and Irons were filmed for her safety, and Irons was said to once be nearly in tears with the stress of doing it, saying, I can't do this, and covering his face. As Kay remembers it, Dominique removed Jeremy Irons' hands from his face and said kindly, yes, you can. We hear this production dissonance in how different people viewed the story in the behind-the-scenes video from the Lolita DVD as well. This featurette also has 650,000 views in its current YouTube upload incarnation, and I find it especially interesting how Adrian Lyon's opinions on what the story is about seem to constantly be in conflict with what his leads think it's about, especially Melanie Griffith and Dominique Swain. This dissonance comes up multiple times in this eight-minute behind-the-scenes video. Line will say something like this. Charlotte sees that Lolita is kind of attracted to Humbert as well, so they're both really rivals for the affection of Humbert. Immediately after he says this, Melanie Griffith has the opposite opinion. She just sees Humbert, who's very handsome and very elegant and different and and she doesn't see any of the stuff that's going on between him and Lolita. Jeremy Irons says this of his thoughts on making a movie with a child sex abuser as its protagonist. Yes, it is something that happens in society. It's not something that should be condoned or encouraged, but it's something that is. And the arts have to shed light upon, question, um, cover everything that happens in life. Meanwhile, Adrian Lyne is over here saying shit like this. It makes you laugh, it makes you cry, it makes you horrified, and that's all you can want for a movie. So filming completes in February 1996, 
and the movie still does not have a distributor. This becomes a popular subject of ridicule in snooty Hollywood circles. Did Adrian Lyne really make a $58 million art house movie? And over a year passes without a distributor being found. Dominique Swain returns to school and does school plays and lifeguard training, and she gets a small part in the movie Face Off. And for all the difficulty that took place on the set of Lolita, it's once the movie is in edits that things really start to fall apart. That is because of the Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1996. We're about to get a little constitutional, so bear with me. The Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1996 was put on the House floor in September of 96 and proposed to add two categories of speech to the legal definition of what child pornography is. Here's the first edition. Any visual depiction, including any photograph, film, video, picture, or computer, or computer-generated image or picture that is or appears to be of a minor engaging in sexually explicit conduct. Here is the second edition that the act introduces. Any sexually explicit image that was advertised, promoted, presented, described, or distributed in such a manner that conveys the impression that it depicts a minor engaging in sexually explicit conduct. What this meant as it pertained to Adrian Lyons Lolita is that all portrayals of a minor engaging in sexual activity, and this included the impression of a minor, which means that Adrian Lyons' 19-year-old stand-in for Dominique Swain was moot so long as she was portraying a 14-year-old character, was illegal. This act was not put into law in a vacuum. I am by no means an expert on this area of the law, but my understanding is that President Clinton, who famously never committed a sex crime, had made cracking down on possessing child pornography a personal priority throughout his first term as president, starting in late 1993 when he wrote this in a personal letter to Attorney General Janet Reno. I find all forms of child pornography offensive and harmful, as I know you do. And I want the federal government to lead aggressively in the attack against the scourge of child pornography. Here's a quick summary of what child pornography laws were prior to this letter being written. According to a paper published by Staub's Law, child pornography laws barely existed before 1970, and the first major law didn't come into play until 1984's Child Protection Act, the same year that the milk carton campaign begins. The Child Protection Act prohibited the distribution of materials that concerned the sexual exploitation of minors, whether the material was deemed obscene or not. In layman's terms, what this means is that it removes all First Amendment freedom of expression protections from child pornography. The 1996 Child Pornography Prevention Act was made in response to the rise of the internet and increase in digital distribution of pornography of all kinds. 1996 is around the time where the internet was becoming widely accessible, whether it was at libraries, in schools, or in some homes. So what this law meant for Adrian Lyne while editing his Lolita was that any implication of sex with a minor, regardless of whether it was performed by an underage actor or an of-age body double, needed to be evaluated by a lawyer. Down the line, in 2001, the Child Pornography Prevention Act is deemed unconstitutional, and Lyne's adaptation of Lolita comes up on the floor of the Supreme Court, just before the act is struck down in 2002 for being too broad and potentially interfering with First Amendment free speech. Here's an excerpt from the Greensboro News & Record from October 2001. 
Lolita came up in Supreme Court debate on Tuesday, as it often seems to do in discussions of child pornography. At issue was the Child Pornography Prevention Act, passed by Congress in 1996. The law was vigorously defended by the Clinton administration and now by the Bush administration. Three out of four federal courts of appeals have upheld it, but the Ninth Circuit on the West Coast held its basic provision unconstitutional. On Tuesday, a skeptical Justice Antonin Scalia inquired from the bench what great works of art would be taken away from us if we couldn't see minors copulating. After some hesitation, the Adult Entertainment Association's lawyer replied, Lolita. He was clearly talking about a movie version of Vladimir Nabokov's novel. A great work of art, exclaimed Scalia. Antonin Scalia, what an amazing person. Just kidding. But in the spring of 1996, when Adrian Lyne was editing and trying to find a distributor, this law posed an understandably gigantic block to his vision of the story getting released. So this basically destroys Lolita's chance of getting distributed widely in the United States. International distribution is more or less uninterrupted. It boils down to this. Adrian Lyne's Lolita, which was his play to get into the Oscars echelon of filmmaking after a decade of erotic thrillers, debuted in the U.S. on TV, on Showtime, in 1998. So let's take a look at this damn thing. I have seen this movie many, many times over the years, always on whichever illegal YouTube upload is currently up. But to prepare for this show, I got an official DVD release of the movie. Now, the plot of Adrian Lyne's Lolita is pretty close to Nabokov's book, sort of. But I am going to zip you through the plot because if you have any doubts at this point in the episode on how director Adrian Lyne viewed Nabokov's story and his own movie, I'm going to include excerpts from the director's commentary that appears on the DVD. I'll let Adrian Lyne speak to his own work. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. So here it is, Humbert Humbert's, I mean, Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. 
Again, this movie begins at the end. Humbert is driving away from the murder scene where he kills Quilty, but this time it's sexy Jeremy Irons' dramatic Humbert. In this version, we do see a flashback to some of Humbert's past. We learn about Annabelle Lee, the girl he fell in love with as a child, but they're aged up. They're 14, not 12, as in the book. Here's what Adrian Lyons says about the flashback. Because I think our story really is about a, a man who, who never grows up, really. He's a man who stays a child, essentially. And the cinematography of this early love scene is full-on Abercrombie ad. These teenagers are falling in love in this very seductive way. It's not at all the clumsy romance that Humbert describes in the book. Humbert goes to America to teach at Beardsley, but first stops in New England, where, as you know, he becomes the lodger of Charlotte Hayes. There are a lot of small details here that aren't in the other adaptations. There's the mention that Charlotte loves Mexican art, but is pretty racist about it. And then we see Dominique Swain's Lolita for the first time. She looks closer to Nabokov's description, with pigtails and sandy hair, and Swain the actress has braces at this time, as well as period-appropriate clothes closer to Nabokov's descriptions. But again, I'm going to refer to that kind of a late 90s Abercrombie ad oversexed presentation. When we meet Lolita, she is soaking wet, wearing a bikini underneath a sheer dress as she reads a magazine beneath a sprinkler which you may know is not generally how people read magazines. The Lolita of this movie is aged up, as usual, to 14 from 12. Adrian Lyon says this. I like the braces there. I think it's important really to keep on remembering that, that, that he's fascinated by a child. You know, she's essentially part, she's at that point, you know, when she's part child, part woman. And I think... That's what uh, Dominic Swain really managed to, to portray. She really had a foot in both camps. I thought it was very important, that, really. And ironically, by the end of the, of the movie, I don't think she could have played the part because she'd grown up. The camera lingers on Dominique Swain's body, something that obviously isn't in the book, nor is the long, piercing gaze and brush of Lolita's foot against Humbert's leg that we see right after she carries laundry past him shortly after. What's important to note here is that the camera is taking on Humbert's perspective in a way that isn't really challenging the grossness of how Humbert is viewing this child. So Humbert is moved in. And Adrian Lyne says this when Humbert puts a ribbon in his journal as a bookmark. I don't know when anybody gets this. There's a kind of a link with the, with the piece of lace there from the underwear that um, Annabelle wore. I don't know whether people pick up on that, but I like the fact that he kept it for all of, all of those years. That's not a detail from the book, and it's not necessary. So in this adaptation, Humbert and Lolita's flirtation is far more direct. She comes into his room and sits on his lap. That foot motif of her foot brushing against his body comes up again and again, and she leans on him as they swing on the outdoor porch swing with Charlotte. She teases him in moments like this. She'll do anything you say. She's getting a thing about you. This scene is a lot. 
Dominique Swain's Lolita is holding a doll. She grabs Humbert's thigh. She rubs up against him. So we see a lot of her touching him, but we don't see any of the rough touching that Humbert does in the book that, according to Nabokov, results in her body becoming bruised. So again, a far more romantic, gauzy presentation of this flirtation between an adult and a child. Lolita is sent to camp, but not before there is another full fantasy of a kissing sequence. Lolita runs up to Humbert's room to say goodbye, and the scene becomes slow motion, romantic. There's a dramatic close-up. It's essentially a Hollister bag. There's a shot of Dominique Swain flying into Jeremy Irons' arms, the shots focused on her crotch meeting his as he catches her. She kisses him for a while, and after she runs away, Jeremy Irons clutches his heart, beaming. It is framed as romantic. Line says this. It's funny, the first time that she kissed him, we were all a little terrified. We knew that she had kissed her boyfriend before, but nobody quite knew what to expect. And once Lolita is gone, Humbert comically tumbles into her closet after she leaves. This was a tricky moment, I think, when he plunges into uh, Lolita's clothes there. It had to be funny, or otherwise it would have been, I think, grotesque. But it is grotesque, Adrian. He's a sexual predator. Okay, as usual, Charlotte leaves the letter confessing her love for Humbert. They get married, and he experiments by drugging her all summer long. There's an extended scene here where Jeremy Irons is trying to effectively tranquilize Melanie Griffith, only for her to wake up and start kissing him. This is framed like a comedy scene. Eventually, Charlotte finds Humbert's journals, revealing that he is sexually obsessed with her daughter, she gets hit by a car, and Humbert leaves to go pick up Lolita at camp. Lolita is picked up, and upon getting into the car, she strips in the back seat to change her clothes, not in the book, and they kiss again. Adrian Lyons says this. It's funny, this was the first time that um, uh, she kissed Jeremy sort of passionately, if you like, and the whole crew, in, including myself, was waiting with bated breath to see what was going to happen. I mean, we just didn't know, really, and when she finally did uh, kiss him with such gusto. I remember the crew going, oh, no. But she, it's funny, I was more worried and uh, I think her mother was more worried about her in the movie than she was herself, really. Humbert and Lolita arrive at the Enchanted Hunters Hotel and we see Lolita and Quilty meet for the first time. This interaction takes place. He can smell when people are sweet. He likes sweet people. Nice young people. Like you. Quilty is seen mainly in the shadows in this adaptation, which is a little closer to how he appears in the book. But in the movie, he's almost always presented at this kind of dramatic Dutch angle that is, for me, a bit much. Humbert takes Lolita to a romantic candlelit dinner at the Enchanted Hunters Hotel, and Lolita tells Humbert who Quilty is. In this version, she already knows that he's a famous playwright. Up in the room, Lolita delivers this famous line from the book. Two people sharing the same hotel room are bound to enter into a, uh, into a well, how can I put it, into a, into a kind of... Um... The word is incest. Unlike the book, she kind of giggles afterward, almost as if she didn't fully mean it. Instead of drugging her, Humbert brings Lolita up to bed, and she gives him a number of seductively framed gazes. He removes her shoes and socks, another foot shot, 
And the whole sequence is kind of framed more like this is her agency and that she's in on this quote-unquote seduction when we know this couldn't possibly be the case. Humbert goes downstairs, has a very Dutch angle scene meeting Quilty for the first time, then comes back upstairs to see Lolita sleeping fitfully. He again stares at her feet, and there's a tight shot of Lolita's butt beneath the sheets in the moonlight. Lolita wakes up and asks for a glass of water, wipes her mouth on his sleeve in slow motion, and goes back to bed. Lyon's commentary during this scene is extremely telling. First, he says this. We will sure to be... What's very interesting with Jeremy's performance really is that you really sense the the struggle of the man. You know, this is a man with a conscience. I mean, he, what he does is awful, obviously, but you sense that he's struggling with, in a sense, being a parent, but also being a lover. He keeps on saying things like this. I think this sequence is interesting here because it's. A really a bewildering mix of sensuality and and parent and the conflict of the that Humbert has. Listener, he literally cannot stop saying things like this. It's interesting because you sense the sexuality and the sensuality from her side, and at this stage, he backs off. Line repeatedly talks about his Lolita as if she is acting knowingly and isn't just asleep for this entire scene. I like these two shots of the sheets here, with her leg and her rear end. I think it's, um, it's nice suggesting what is there rather than seeing it. It's more for his imagination, more to torture him. The next morning at the Enchanted Hunters Hotel is in the book When Humbert First Rapes Lolita. Humbert says that she seduced him in the book, but makes it clear that he's making this argument to a jury. In the movie, he says that she seduced him, and that's simply how the scene is presented. There is no creative choice made reminding us that this could be an unreliable account. It's just shown. Lolita kisses Humbert confidently and says, I guess I'm just going to have to show you everything. She undoes his pants, removes her retainer, and the scene fades to black. The way that this scene implies both seduction and consent is enough to spike the entire thing in the dumpster as far as I'm concerned. But they leave the Enchanted Hunter's Hotel, and as in the book, Lolita begins to feel physical pain later in the day, and she says this. Well, what do you expect? I was a daisy fresh girl and look what you've done to me. I should call the police and tell them that you raped me, you dirty old man. This is a very memorable and telling line from the book, but like when Dominique Swain delivers the It's Called Incest line, her character always giggles or smiles at Humbert afterward, almost as if to imply that she's actually kidding. After saying she should call the police and say that Humbert raped her, she smiles and gazes out the window. She's joking. When she turns, we can see that she has a hickey. Jeremy Irons as Humbert smiles, then a bit later tells her that her mother is dead, and we hear Lolita cry all night in the hotel, just as in the book. She comes to Humbert's bed crying, and he holds her. Line says this. Again, this moment when she climbs into bed with him is really the moment of a, of a parent 
really looking after his child. Uh, there's always this strange, conflicted uh, thing throughout the movie. At this point, the road trip portion of the movie begins. Lolita rarely expresses grief about her mother again, and we see a series of joyful scenes of her kicking him in the face with her feet as he drives. This whole romantic montage that has become very influential in online communities. In one particularly memorable scene, Lolita and Humbert stop at a motel with a bed that has a Magic Fingers vibrator attached. This happens. Give me a quarter and a dime. What for? For the Magic Fingers. My Magic Fingers aren't enough? Lolita scowls and gets her quarter, and we see her writhe all over the vibrating bed in a montage before she flushes the toilet while Humbert is in the shower, making the water of the shower go cold. Line comments this. I think in this scene you kind of sense that the balance of power is changing a little bit, and whereas he was manipulating her, now she's beginning to manipulate him. Another romantic montage as they travel across the country. A slow-motion tennis sequence, Humbert removing Lolita's straps as she's falling asleep. Foot shots, foot shots, foot shots. And what I feel is the most unpleasant addition in the entire movie, a scene where Lolita is reading a comic book while sitting on Humbert's lap, and he begins to have sex with her. This is not in the book and is better matched with the first two minutes of an actual pornographic video. Dominique Swain as Lolita orgasms holding the comic book in her hand. It is a difficult scene to watch. Adrian Line offers this explanation. This was a scene that was very troubling for people, and uh, again, I think it kind of reinforced the idea of child and woman. You know, the child is reading the comic and getting pleasure from that and also the the adult side as well no in the scene immediately after this we see another example of lolita crying presumably right after sex with humbert then the two of them go to beardsley and humbert braids lolita's hair before school lolita brings up being in the school play and humbert says no she replies like this you're depriving me of my civil rights. Why did you learn that language? I'm intelligent. Instead of being convinced by the headmistress that Lolita should be in the play as in the book, Lolita convinces Humbert in another scene presented as very seductive. She caresses his leg while demanding that she be allowed to do the play. Humbert starts to get turned on, and Lolita demands that her allowance increase from one to two dollars, and he agrees. She smiles at him deviously. Adrian Lyne says this. I like this shot of her foot rocking him a right to be in a play if i want kind of starts off this scene of sensuality and and it suggests that more and more she's in charge if you like she's starting to manipulate him right 
I should mention, there's another foot shot in that scene as well. So Lolita gets to do the play, and Humbert is aware that Claire Quilty is watching the rehearsals. We then see a scene of a naked Lolita, played by the 19-year-old body double we talked about earlier, but a naked Lolita who is frustrated with Humbert in bed. She's snatching coins from him, biting him, pulling his hair in anger, almost animalistic in how she's behaving. Humbert in this scene is very much framed as the victim. Line says this. Where she hid the money, I never knew. We used the body double in uh, in this scene for some of the uh, wider shots. It's amazing what you get away with, really. Dominic was wearing a, a bodysuit, as I remember, and because the shots are so quick, you really don't see... Humbert then has a meeting with the headmistress of Lolita's school, and the headmistress mentions that Lolita is still 14. This means the timeline of the movie is much shorter than that of the book. After realizing Lolita is not going to piano lessons, she and Humbert get into an argument. Humbert slaps her, and in that same scene we saw in the original Jeremy Irons' Dominique Swain chemistry test, she screams, murder me like you murdered my mother. It's a very intense scene. Go ahead, murder me. Murder me like you murdered sorry, my mother. I'm sorry. Murder me like you murdered shut my up, mother. Up. Go shut on, up, murder me. Murder me like you murdered my mother. Lolita runs away. Humbert finds her later, and she's changed her mind for mysterious reasons. She says, take me to bed, and then they hit the road again. Lolita swaps out her chewing gum for a banana in the car while Quilty follows. Lolita puts on ruby red lipstick. By this point in the movie, Humbert is portrayed as paranoid and bumbling as Quilty continues to follow them. Humbert again slaps Lolita to scare her. This is how Line describes this. And I think this kind of sexuality of the way she eats the banana I thought was important in this scene because he's becoming more and more unhinged, more and more ragged, more and more convinced that he's being followed by the police. And I think the fact that he's being tortured sexually at the same time, I think, was important. It all gets mixed up together, if you like. It's iconically subtle filmmaking, Adrian. Really good stuff. So this next sequence is unique in Lolita adaptations in that it really focuses on Lolita's conspiring with Claire Quilty to escape Humbert's clutches, more so than any other adaptation. At one motel, when Humbert comes back from getting Lolita her bananas, get it? Bananas? When he comes back with the symbolic bananas, Lolita is sitting on the bed with smudged lipstick. It's implied that she's been out kissing someone else. We then get a full body shot of Lolita seductively holding the bananas in slow motion before Humbert violently slams her to the bed and demands to know who she's with. He tears at her clothes, and instead of being afraid, Lolita is laughing maniacally and seems to be getting turned on by Humbert's fear and anger. Again, just a wildly irresponsible way to frame an assault like this. Adrian Line has this to say. I like the kind of imagery of these uh, bananas in this scene. It's... um kind of pathetic really you know the way he's been sent out to get them and then it becomes obviously a kind of a sexual imagery doing doing this scene he can't stop talking about these bananas there's literally an assault of a child taking place on screen and adrian line is talking about the bananas 
After this scene, Jeremy Irons' Humbert is so paranoid now that every angle is a Dutch angle. As in the book, Lolita gets sick, she runs away, Humbert searches for her with no luck, and three years later, Humbert only learns of her location when she reaches out to him asking for money. He, of course, shows up and finds Lolita, now pregnant and living in a shack with her husband, and as in the book, Humbert begs her to tell him who she had left with all those years ago. Lolita says, My God, Dad, it was Quilty. It was Claire Quilty. This was one of the only scenes in the movie where I felt like the additions made were pretty effective. Humbert gives Lolita the money. She tells him that she is not going to go with him in a scene that still breaks my heart. And before he leaves, this exchange is added. Lo, can you ever forget what I've done to you? Say goodbye, Molly. Say goodbye to my dad. I actually do like this addition, immediately followed by one that I hate. After getting in his car, Humbert looks at the shack and sees a pregnant 17-year-old Lolita. He blinks a few times, and suddenly, there's the 14-year-old Lolita from the day they kissed back in the Ramsdale house, down to the costume. He smiles, nostalgic. Then, as always, he goes, he kills Claire Quilty in a scene that is way too long, that does feature Frank Langella's penis, something that made Frank Langella very upset because Adrian Lyne said he wasn't going to include the shot of Frank Langella's penis. Anyways, that's the end of the movie. And upon the first rewatch of many that I was doing for this episode, I thought that they had spared Dominique Swain the scene from the book where Humbert licks Dolores's eyeball, or the scene early on where Humbert describes a time that he bounced Lolita on his lap and ejaculated, but claims that she didn't notice. But these scenes absolutely were shot between Irons and Swain. They appear as deleted scenes on the DVD and have hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube. Well, you know what? I'm troubled. So, as we discussed, this movie does not get wide distribution in the U.S., which does end up getting it quite a bit of press. And what did the critics have to say in 1997 and 98? The new version of Lolita, released at last, turns out to be a beautifully made, melancholy, and rather touching account of a doomed love affair between a full-grown man and a very young woman. But that, of course, is not what Vladimir Nabokov's masterpiece is about. The film's masterstroke is its understanding that this is Humbert's story, told in his own lyrical voice from his own passionate, sad, tortured perspective. There are flashes of seduction from Lolita that are intentionally hard to distinguish from a schoolgirl crush, the better for Humbert to misinterpret. Ms. Swain walks this incredibly narrow line between innocent playfulness and adult knowledge without a misstep. Yes, the subject matter can be considered offensive, but the director, Adrian Lyon, has filmed the material in such a way that one would have to be awfully sensitive to be offended by anything in the movie. The scenes of intimacy between Humbert and Lolita are done in shadows and in a manner that generally keeps their affection private. Lynn's efforts to be both passionate and artistic are generally successful, although a few sex scenes are disturbing and arguably close to salacious. Critics generally liked this movie and objected to the reasons that many found it to be controversial. I found these reviews to all be very late 90s in their tone. So I really do try to keep my opinions out of this show as much as I can, but I really don't like this movie. As far as I'm concerned, it belongs to a very particular category of movie where the books have been 
carefully adapted down to the smallest detail, and yet the movie somehow manages to miss the entire point of what it's adapting. Because Lyne's movie pays an extraordinary amount of attention to the details of the book. There are these little moments, color choices, characters who only appear for a line or two in the text that make it very clear that all of the critical players in this movie have read Nabokov's book many, many times. And the visuals that this attention to detail produces can often be really beautiful. There is one critical thing missing, however, and that is any reminder or indication that Humbert Humbert, who is a child sex abuser, is an unreliable narrator. But they miss the point of the entire book. We don't have Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. What we have here is Humbert Humbert, the $58 million movie. How could they possibly have, I mean, they present Humbert's entire story as if it's just the truth. It's just a story being told. You don't even find out he's gone to jail until the last slide of the movie, the same slide that tells us that Dolores Hayes has died in childbirth. And you're not told that his vested interest may be in winning your favor over, making you dislike Charlotte, demonizing Dolores at any opportunity. No one, did no one notice that? I wouldn't be as bothered if this movie hadn't endured as much as it has, and I am not alone in feeling this way. I was interested to learn that many Nabokovians, throwback to a past episode, that means Vladimir Nabokov scholars, Nabokovians also tend to really dislike this movie and find it to completely miss the core message of Nabokov's text. Some in particular are deeply disappointed and frustrated with Nabokov's son Dmitri for signing off on and actively participating in this production. Here's a conversation I had with Nabokov's biographer, Brian Boyd, about an early screening he saw of this movie where Dmitri Nabokov was speaking alongside Adrian Lyne. And I asked him about some of his thoughts on the adaptation. I watched it for the first time at Cornell um, in a large audience of uh, students and mm. the members, the, the people who had come for a Nabokov centenary celebration. And then in the Q&A, there were all these uh, adoring questions from the student audience. N none of the, the conference attendees said anything, but I hated the movie so much uh, that I wanted to say something. And I, I thought, shall I spoil the party, spoil this atmosphere? And I thought, well, I'll kick myself forever if I don't say something. And I, because, again, partly in reaction to the Kubrick one where they had to make her look older, the, the emphasis here is very much on, on her youth. So the braces, the bubble gum and, and so on. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just don't think he that they do it in, in the right way. And they, they said, last question, Stephen Schiff said, I think Brian Boyd was going to ask a question. So, mm -hmm. so I, I put it to him. What would you say to the the uh, comment that what you have filmed is not Nabokov's Lolita but Humbert's Lolita? And he didn't know what the question. He, he didn't understand the question. But Humbert is very engaging and witty, and they felt the need for for the film to work to make him uh, appealing. And I don't understand why on earth they felt that, but that was the decision that, that Adrian Lyne made and that was the, the brief given to the screen, various screenplay writers. And if you look at the first scene between Nabokov, and, uh, between Humbert and Lolita in the screenplay, 
Hamlet is just such a a, a ball, and you know he he imagines that. He manages to make himself witty as a narrator of the novel. But here, when you see this dialogue of him sort of trying to make verbal advances, and uh, it, it's just so repellent. It was fascinating for me to go through, you know, okay, there there is more cultural freedom to show things, although, you know, it was there. I, I guess you could shoot more. Um, but it just was so in the other direction of like that, you know, Vladimir Nabokov's great love story is like used again and again in the trailers. But even the, the way the cinematography is encouraging you to kind of be on Humbert's side, as it were, it's just very, um, it's very strange. And especially for a, a movie that seems to have a big, you know, agenda with, with staying faithful to very minute details of the book, but then kind of, missing the theme it's just it's it's frustrating i i uh it, it is an extraordinary example of of how you can attend to the the letter of the details and get the spirit absolutely wrong and uh yeah uh, nabokov would have been utterly appalled i think Thank you so much to Brian Boyd, and he describes this more at length in a book of his I really enjoyed called Stalking Nabokov. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. So Adrian Lyons' Lolita romanticizes the relationship between Dolores Hayes and Humbert Humbert, while generally still portraying more of the trauma and unhappiness that Dolores experiences than any other adaptation does. And while seeing Dominique Swain as Lolita express this anger and sadness and remorse, as Brian said, this movie is still an adaptation of an abuser's account. And the 1998 that Lolita was sort of released into in the U.S. generally seemed to take away the message that this relationship was to be viewed as a romance. Don't believe me? Check this out. So, ladies and gentlemen, 
here are the nominees for Best Kiss. Best Kiss. Gwyneth Paltrow and Joseph Fiennes. Are you the author of the plays of William Shakespeare? Jeremy Irons and Dominique Swain. But I'd be happiest with you. Ben Stiller and Cameron Diaz. What you just heard is Dolores Hayes and Humbert Humbert being nominated for Best Kiss at the MTV Movie Awards in 1999. They did lose to Shakespeare in Love, but that is the level to which Adrian Lyne presents this relationship as a romance. So what is it about this movie, outside of the dangerous lack of adequate framing of the story, that convinced us that this was a love story? I would also like to implicate cinematographer Howard Atherton here, because Adrian Lyne harps on the framing of his characters in the director's commentary of the movie as well, and singles out romantically lit shots of Dominique Swain as Lolita, saying things like, beautiful lighting, we just wanted to make her look totally alluring. So while the Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1996 gets all of the sex scenes with the 19-year-old body double eliminated, except for the one I described to you, frantically collecting those gold coins of Humbert's that Lana Del Rey sings about in her music 15 years later. Even with these shots omitted, Lolita and Humbert gaze at each other lovingly upon meeting. She soaked in the spray of a sprinkler wearing a bikini, her mother completely oblivious. The camera is clearly telling you this is their moment. The cinematography of Lolita is done by Howard Atherton, whose other credits include Fatal Attraction, Indecent Proposal, and Bad Boys. The first two of those are Adrian Lyne erotic thrillers, and the last, you probably know, is a Will Smith, Martin Lawrence action classic that, uh, you have to admit, treats women's bodies like they're absolute objects. Lyne bringing his team over from the erotic thriller genre just does not work. And that sticks out particularly in the cinematography. Because here's a cinematographer who does not and has never dealt in nuance in a movie that desperately needs that behind the camera in order to work. Again, I'll go back to Sven Nyqvist, the cinematographer for 1978's Pretty Baby. His work constantly brings you into the perspective of Brooke Shields' 12-year-old character. The camera communicates her confusion and fear in ways that don't even exist in the movie's script. That's his job, particularly in a story hinging on something as fraught as child sex abuse, the camera cannot simply translate the narrative of an abuser. But that is more or less what Howard Atherton does here. The same thing happens in almost every scene in which they appear. While there is the occasional shot or moment that reminds us what a nauseating power dynamic this is, we are far more often presented with softly lit love scenes, with foot shots, with Dominique Swain gazing at Jeremy Irons knowingly, seductively. It's the same thing we've been talking about for the entire series. The many moments that this movie presents as erotic are similar. Not only does Dominique Swain's Lolita sarcastically laugh after a number of key lines, it's called incest, I was a daisy fresh girl and look what you've done to me, but any moment the camera isn't presenting her as traumatized, it's presenting her as very sexually knowing. And this is pretty exactly how Humbert presents Dolores in the text, as consenting and vindictive in one moment, then crying and undone in the next. What line's direction misses is the context is who is telling you this story. 
I know, I know I'm harping on this, but truly imagine the person who has hurt you most in your life got to tell your life story like it was unquestionably true. That's how this movie is adapted. Then there's the cinematography in the sex scenes where Dominique Swain does appear. There is that deleted scene where Humbert is aroused by Lolita on the couch, the camera language implying that she's in on it, shooting him knowing looks. There's that scene where she climaxes while reading a comic book. There's that scene where she removes her retainer before ostensibly giving Humbert a blowjob at age 14. There's that scene where the camera frames her laughing her head off when Humbert asks her where she's been. The camera shows Dolores in these moments as a consenting and willing party, ignoring, particularly at the end, that the other person she's seeing is another child sex abuser. As Brian Boyd said, all the high-level decisions in this movie are invested in telling Humbert's story, not Nabokov's, and that's a big problem. How can I be sure of that? Uh, well, this movie absolutely flopped in the U.S. theatrically due to the whole not-being-released thing, but it does do pretty well financially and critically overseas, particularly in Russia. But as you may know, when a movie flops, this usually means it'll eventually crop up for free on YouTube. And that's how I found this movie in high school via a late 2000s upload of the movie in 14 parts, back when YouTube videos could only be 10 minutes long, I'm old, and this rip of the movie has long been removed from YouTube. If you were interested in seeing this movie as a young person, it was not hard to find it. In fact, our whole next episode is about people who either managed to swipe a copy of Lolita from Blockbuster in the early 2000s, or like me, found easy-to-find illegal rips on YouTube and Dailymotion, and then created fan forums about the movie. I just rewatched Lines Lolita the other day on a YouTube rip just before recording this episode, and it's a great and frustrating way to gauge how Adrian Lyons' presentation of Dolores Hayes' story creates this dissonance and confusion. Here's a random assortment of comments on the current upload from the past two years. But girl fall in love and she also enjoy it. I read this book when I was 12. My mom was like, you can't let read this. And my dad told me, it's way too hard for you. But I kept reading and I didn't regret it. I'm so confused. Is he in love with her or no? Is she in love with him or no? I'm 15 and finding this movie interesting. I'm watching. Not to mention, and I hope that this upload of the movie has been deleted by the time you're hearing this because I did report it. Inexplicably, in the middle of this re-uploaded Lolita, for reasons I could not explain to you with a gun to my head, there is actual pornography spliced into the middle of this illegal YouTube upload. Coming in about an hour into the normal movie I've been frustrated by a million times, it is just a full 10 minutes of porn spliced into the middle of Lyne's movie, and the uploader placed it right after the scene where Lolita climaxes while reading the comic book. You're about to hear a scene from the movie end and a 90s-era porn scene begin. <laughs> Even the illegal YouTube uploaders are telling you that is how we are being encouraged to see Dolores in this movie. And the legacy of this ambiguous presentation is still with us. A lot of the influence that this movie endures is related to that thing that Nabokov loved, aesthetics. 
The aesthetics of this movie are connected to beautiful costume design and set design, and yes, the aesthetics of romanticizing Lolita's relationship with Humbert Humbert. So that's Lolita by Adrian Lyne from 1997, and that's the very American America that it was released into. As these YouTube comments indicate, this movie may have been a financial failure in the short term, but it has secured a long legacy on the internet, for better and for worse. 1997 is right around the time when computer access became normal and feasible for teenagers, whether they're at their homes, schools, or libraries. And with this, Dolores Hayes fan communities and fashion sites start to crop up. Dolores Hayes logs in next week on Lolita Podcast. Lolita Podcast is an iHeartRadio production. It is written and hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. It is produced by Sophie Lichterman, Beth Ann Macaluso, Miles Gray, and Jack O'Brien. It is edited by the wonderful Isaac Taylor. Music is from Zoe Blade. Theme is from Brad Dickert. And my guest voices this week are Sophie Lichterman, Miles Gray, Isaac Taylor, and Julia Clare. See you next time. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.